Now inside your bulletin is the call to worship. It is the praise that David gives to God. Why is there no God like our God? Because our God is so great, so majestic, and therefore worthy of praise. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Well, let us praise his glorious name by taking our Trinity hymn books, the smaller blue hymn book, the Trinity, turning to number 35, in which we get a glimpse of the unspeakable character of God in this hymn. Number 35, Trinity Hymn Book, Immortal, Invisible. Please join me in prayer. Our great and glorious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather together today and to worship you. Father, we are thankful that we can come together, that we have the freedom to do that. Thank you, Father, that we can see each other, but we would pray, Father, that it would be evident that we have gathered here today 
to bring honor and glory to your name. Pray as your word is opened that you would instruct us. Pray that you would help us, Father, as we seek to lift praises to your name, that we will indeed meet with you today and that we will be better equipped to serve you because of our meeting together. Pray that all that we would do would bring honor and glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now again in the Trinity hymn book, turn to 136. Hymn 136. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name. 136. Trinity hymn book. Now in our consecutive reading through the New Testament this morning, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We began looking at this chapter last week and we read through the first 28 verses. I would remind you of what we read there in the 28th verse when Jesus himself says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And after making that statement, 
Jesus Christ now goes on to point us to the one to whom the Scriptures point us to. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one who was greater than Jonah, and that one who was greater even than Solomon. He then goes on to say, in taking the Word of God, may you apply it to your life, may that Word be seen in your life as you live in this world. And then finally, he gives us a warning about being hypocrites. That is, saying one thing and yet doing another. So again, it is important that we hear the Word of God, but also that we do it. Will you follow me as I read Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 29? And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with these men, with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will stand with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in the cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated. And when the lamp illuminates you with its ray, rays. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean clean the outside of your cup and of the platter, but the inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay attention to tithe the mint and rude and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burden hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you built their tombs. And for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Well, may God bless the reading of his word. As we go to prayer once again this morning, we want to pray for Ho Jun Jang who's a church planter in South Korea that we have the privilege of partnering with in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to pray for our brother and his family there in South Korea. And then also many of you have been made aware, but I will announce it again, that Pastor Ted Donnelly went home to be with his Savior yesterday afternoon. Many of us have had the privilege of sitting under Pastor Donnelly's ministry when he was over here in the States. He's from Northern Ireland. If you've never heard Pastor Donnelly preach, I would highly recommend that you get on Sermon Audio. I think it's under Edward Donnelly. And listen to that man preach. He's one of my, if I can say it in the right way, he's just one of my favorite preachers. The simplicity of that man, and yet the the way he opened the Word of God was a delight. And we've had the privilege of having him here, uh, I believe, a couple times. But we do want to pray for his wife, Lorna. I had someone call me this week and said, I, I, I listened to one of Pastor Ted Donnelly's sermons this week, and what a delight. And I just wanted to call and just, just check on him to see how he's doing. And he's now doing very well. He's in the presence of his Savior, but how thankful we are for our brother. So let us seek our God together in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, how we give you thanks for God's word. 
And we pray that each one of us might know the truths that are found in that word, that they would be precious golden nuggets that are a treasure to our souls and to our walk with you. Father, we pray that we might love thy law, even as the psalmist expressed, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Father, how we pray that you would even come and and bless the preaching of your word this morning. Draw near to us, and by the work of your spirit and by your word, come and do us good. Father, we're thankful that that word points us to Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, we have this great salvation. We, we have a way in which man can be reconciled to God through his finished work on the cross. And how we give you thanks that this morning we do not serve a Savior who is still in the tomb, but we serve a living Savior who now lives and sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And so, Father, we would ask not only here, but wherever your word goes forth, Throughout our county and state and around the world, may you bless and use it to even add to the kingdom of God by granting unto men faith and repentance. Father, we pray especially for that church plant work going on there in Yasu, South Korea. Thank you for Ho Jun. And we just pray that you would continue to bless the opportunities that he's had to share the gospel and have contact with with various ones there in the city in which he lives. And Father, how we pray that that small group of people that gather in his home each Lord's Day would would blossom and we would see a church planted there, a church where the whole counsel of God would be preached, a church where there's a people that love one another and love you. And so, Father, we pray your blessing upon his efforts. Use him, we pray for your glory and for your honor. And then, Father, your word tells us for us to live as Christ and to die is gain. And, Father, how we know that death does bring sadness. But, Father, we give you thanks that for the believer, death brings joy unspeakable as they are ushered into your presence. And, Father, we give you thanks for Pastor Donnelly. We thank you for his many years of faithfully proclaiming your word. And Father, we just pray that you would draw near to that church there in Northern Ireland. May they find you to be a source of strength and encouragement during these days when you have taken a man who's labored in their presence for many years home. Father, we pray for Lorna. We we pray for the children that you'll just draw near to them. And we would ask that even through Pastor Donnelly's ongoing preaching on things like Sermon Audio and and his books, that, Father, he will continue to be used by you for the good of your church. So, Father, again, draw near to us in this hour and be with Micah as he opens the word as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now before the word of God is open to us, I would ask that you take your hymns of grace, the larger hymns, and they're spread out. So if there's not one right there, feel free to get up and grab one. But the hymns of grace, number 26, number 26. And if you have not, let me introduce to you uh, Micah Smith. We thank God that God was pleased to bring Micah and Kelsey among us. Micah is now working alongside me as an intern, so we're delighted to have him in that position, and he will be the one opening the Word of God to us this morning. But before he does, hymns of grace number 26, I sing the mighty power of God. Let's stand together as we sing. Good morning. It's good to be with the people of God today, isn't it? And I so appreciate those uh, that selection of hymns because if you notice, there was a common theme running through each one of them. Did you notice how all of them were focused on the being, the glory, and the majesty of our God? And that's fitting with the message today. Because today, by God's grace, marks the beginning of 
a series of messages where we're going to be focusing on the being and the attributes of God. There's nothing better for God's people than to gaze at the glory of the Lord. And that's why this message is titled as it is. It comes from our text. Our text today, if you want to turn there, is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the beginning of chapter 4. It's going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 6. I'll give you a, a second to turn there while I pray and ask the Lord to, to bless his word. Father, you know our weakness, you know our frailty, you know that we are, we are beggars before your throne. We're also people that you've created in your image, and we are people who you've set your love on in your Son. So I ask that you would uh, strengthen our minds this morning, fill our hearts, and uh, allow us to be readily attentive to your word, to see the glory and the majesty of your Son. We, uh, we ask these things in his mighty name. Amen. Let's uh, read the word of God together. Uh, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're beginning with this passage in today's message because I think it gives us a rationale for the following messages of as we are going to study the being and the attributes of God. And I think that the rationale is really found in Paul's gospel logic in this text. Paul has a logic for the reason that he does ministry in the way that he does it. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, this ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do, uh, excuse me, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul is defending his ministry in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's defending it against false apostles who would come into the church and say, Paul's not a real apostle. Look at the simplicity with which he preaches about Jesus. He doesn't sound wise. He doesn't sound smart. He doesn't sound like he has some massive intellect. He's not like the philosophers of, of Greece, or that would have been in Corinth as well. He's not like our philosophers. Look at the simplicity and the rudeness with which he preaches the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And then they would come in and say, we are the true apostles. So the second, so the, the, both of the letters uh, to Corinth have these themes in them. And this, the, letter to, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians specifically has this theme of him defending his ministry. But he says there's a logic for the reason that he plainly preaches the truth about Jesus. And that logic is germane to our subject about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says that we do not lose heart and we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth. The openness of Paul's preaching the truth about Jesus is compared in this text with the glory of the Old Covenant, the glory that the Old Covenant shone with. Uh, just go back up to read, uh, starting at verse 4. I think it will be helpful to get some background here. Starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So new covenant rather than the old one. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. Remember the veil there, that's key to this text. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And yet... Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant, the giving of the law, with the giving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Old covenant and new covenant. But he says that the old covenant reflected the glory of God in such a way that when Moses came down from the mountain, the people asked Moses to put a veil over his face. And there were a lot of different reasons they did this. The first one is because the ministry of the law was a ministry of condemnation. And the second one is because it was permanent. 
and it was destined to pass away. So the glory of God shined in the old covenant in a certain way. And what Paul is saying is that the glory of God shines even brighter and permanently in this new covenant that we've been given in Jesus. So why is this uh, relevant to our study of the being in the attributes of God? Paul's open statement in the uh, preaching of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ and the openness with which he does that. Why is that relevant to our study of the attributes of God? It's because Paul's method of his ministry shows us what is most important for the Christian life. He shows us our deepest need by his plain preaching of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He shows us what Christ came for. So, because the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus, because Jesus has revealed to us the Father, because Jesus has revealed to us all of the attributes of God and the being of God, that is the reason that Paul would have us behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I kind of want to stop for a second because I think that there are probably a lot of people, maybe not here, but elsewhere, who might stop and say, if you're going to preach through the being and attributes of God, that sounds good, but you know, what real practical import does that have for my life? How is this something that I can put into practice? how, How can I turn this into advice for my life? There are so many people out there who want a series of sermons on 12 principles for managing your finances or 12 principles for, you know, uh, instituting good family values in your home or something like that. There are a lot of people that would just, would say when coming to a subject like the attributes of God, well, that sounds nice, but what does that really have to do with me? And I think that Paul's answer to that question is twofold. I think that we're going to see from this text and from this series that, number one, if that's our question, if we are primarily concerned with advice for our lives, then, number one, our priorities are backwards. We weren't primarily saved by God in order to get our finances in order or in order to to raise good children, as as important as those things are, that is not the primary reason that God saved us. So I think we're going to see that from our text. But I also think that we're going to see at the back end of it that nothing on this earth could be more practical for your life and your sanctification and growing in your walk with the Lord and being conformed into the image of Christ than beholding the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus. So, I think the first thing that we need to see about this text is God's intention or God's passion for his own glory. Because that's really God's first intention in the gospel. It's God's first intention in creation. He created all things. And we know from Psalms like Psalm 19 that the the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So that's, but that's not only true of creation. It's also true of what God accomplished in sending his son. 
his glory, his own glory, and manifesting that to all of creation is primary. So Paul's focus in ministry really represents God's first focus in the gospel. Look at, I think we can see this in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why has God acted in Christ in the way that he, in the way that he has? First and foremost, it's so that his people would gaze in awe of who he is. He saved you in order for you to behold your God. That's the first and foremost reason. God's action in the gospel reveals a passion for his own glory above his passion for anything else. He saved you so that you would behold the glory of the Lord. We see that Satan wants to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ or from them to, uh, to keep them from seeing the glory of God. God, in, in, at the moment of conversion here, that Paul speaks about in verse 6. The moment that you came and believed on Jesus. He says, God shines to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The moment of your conversion was a moment of beholding who God was as he had manifested himself in Jesus in the sending of his own son. You understood something about God in that moment. You understood his love for you and sending his son to be the propitiation for your sins. You understood his power as you saw him reconcile innumerable sinners to himself through a piece of wood on a hill 2,000 years ago. You saw his power and love as he raised his son from the dead for you. So the moment of your conversion, not only did you believe the gospel, but you also beheld the glory of God as it's revealed in that gospel work of Jesus. So God saved you, not even first and foremost for you, and not even first and foremost for me. He saved us so that he would be seen and marveled at by all of creation. And I think we see this also in the fact that Paul calls Jesus the image of God. Look at, uh, look at verse 4 again. Satan is blinding the minds of people who haven't believed on Jesus to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, if you know your Bible, what does that remind you of? What does the image of God remind you of? Reminds you of the creation of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? It reminds you that God created man in his own image, and then he gave them dominion over all of the earth, and he gave them, he put them in the garden where he himself dwelt with them in rich communion. 
And then ultimately he said, go take dominion of all of this. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So when God created Adam, Adam was supposed to, Adam was supposed to act as his image or his vice regent in all of creation. Adam was supposed to display the glory of God in everything that God had made. Obvi- and obviously, we know how that ended. Adam disobeyed. Humanity fell and was plunged into sin and darkness, and the image of God was marred beyond all recognition. What Paul is saying here is that in the sending of God's own Son, he has restored that image. That original glory that Adam was supposed to have as the image of God in creation, God himself has accomplished by sending one who is eternally his own image in the person of his Son. He's the Word of the Father. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. And he has sent him and we have beheld him as he dwells in flesh, as he took on what was ours in order to redeem us. So, Christ is the untarnished image of God brought to us in God's Son. And it is a manifestation of who God is concentrated in his son who's come in the flesh. But I want us to look at a couple of I want us to look at a couple of cross references in scripture because really if you read the New Testament or the Old Testament as well, you you begin to see this bursting out of every page. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in this chapter, Paul is talking about how the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles. But the central focus of his ministry is the gospel of Christ's work on the cross, even though it is foolishness to Jew and Gentile. Let's, uh, let's read starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will, th- I will thwart. So the power that the Jew expects and the wisdom that the Gentile expects, God is going to overturn those with the display of his own wisdom and his own power in Jesus. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, acts of God's power. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why was Jesus nailed to a cross? Why was God's eternal Son nailed to a cross? And why did he suffer in the place of sinners? It was in order to unfold the glory of God to all of creation. The cross, in many ways, is the public exposition of the character of God. It's the public display of his majesty. He's saying, look at my son. Look at what I've accomplished in him. Look how I could reconcile an innumerable people through my son dying on a piece of wood under the power of Rome. 
Look at God, how God can reconcile us to himself by his own son suffering in our place. God intends to reveal his wisdom and his power by overturning the wisdom and power of the world and by manifesting himself in Christ. Uh, Another one is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We're going to be traversing the New Testament a little bit this morning, but I just want us to see how this subject is so crucial to the apostles. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. If you know your Bible, you know that in Romans chapter 1, he... Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God's wrath is made known through certain things. So God is making himself known. But in chapter 3, he turns and says something else has been manifested. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show or manifest or proclaim God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is to show the righteousness, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul's logic in this text is saying that in, before Christ came, there were all sorts of people who had their sins forgiven. We think about people like David. He sinned with Bathsheba, but he was received back into a right relationship with God. But God is also holy, and he's the one who says in Exodus that he won't, he won't clear the guilty. So this brings a problem. How can God be loving and forgive people and justify the ungodly, and yet not do so at the expense of his holiness and his justice. How can God look at a sinner like me and say, you are just, you are righteous, and I accept you into my presence? And at the same time, maintain his justice. And what Paul is saying in this text is that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, through, uh, for all who believe. So God has solved that problem and manifested his love and his grace and his righteousness and his holiness and his justice by his son being the propitiation for our sins. God has shown us that he is just because he crushed his son under the weight of his wrath in our place. And God has also shown us that he is an infinite, boundless ocean of love by giving his son for sinners. So do you see that the work of Jesus brings all of the attributes of God into a perfect harmony with one another? All of the attributes of God are displayed most fully and vividly and brightly in the sending of his son 
And that's why we're starting off a series on the attributes of God by looking at some of these texts. Because in Christ, God's purpose for us is so that we might see him and behold him as he's revealed himself for all of eternity and all of his saving power and glory. So, the gospel reveals God's passion for his own glory. That's reason number one that we would study the attributes of God. Because God's passion is for the revelation of himself to us. The gospel is the public exposition of the majesty of God. Now, if God's intention in the work of his son is to show his glory to all of creation, then meditating on each perfection of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ really is the highest aim of the Christian life, isn't it? Shouldn't our priorities match God's? And if God's first intention is that we would see him and marvel at what he's done in his son, then how can we go and prefer something else? God's word addresses all areas of life, right? Pastor Calvin's preaching through the law of God right now in Deuteronomy. And there are lots of principles for life in there. And there should be because God's word is sufficient to guide us in all of our living and how we please him. But sometimes we forget to keep first things first, don't we? First, The first thing uh, in God's mind and the first thing in our minds should be the glory of God, beholding that glory as it shines in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not the only answer to that question of why study the attributes. That's just the first answer. The first answer is because there's nothing better that you could be doing with your time and with your life. But the second answer is that really there is nothing that, there is nothing that could be more practical for your Christian life as well. Uh, look at verse 17 again. Uh, back, into, back in 2 Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what Paul is saying to them is not only does the blood of Jesus justify you, not only are you counted right with God through Christ's gospel work in your place, but it also does something else. Look at, look at, these, look at these, uh, these words that he uses. The first is our action. Beholding the glory of the Lord. So our action is to behold the glory of God as it is in Jesus Christ. The object is obviously the glory of God. But then notice what that leads to. It's not a waste of time to, to study the attributes of God or to look at the being of God as he's revealed in Jesus. Because according to Paul in verse 17, the outcome of our beholding of the glory of the Lord is to be transformed into the same image of Christ 
from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God uses your beholding of God in Jesus Christ as the primary tool to transform you into his image. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that as you see Christ, and as you delight in Christ, and as your soul drinks from the wells of salvation that are in him, then naturally you will want to obey him. Naturally, your life will be transformed and conformed to what he's revealed in his word. Paul is saying that his ministry is designed to proclaim Jesus so that as people see the totality of who God is shining in Christ, they will be transformed by that sight. So according to Paul, nothing is more practical for our sanctification than to gaze into the being and attributes of God in Christ. This is the engine of our sanctification. The engine of our sanctification isn't us buckling down, white-knuckling, and trying really, really hard to obey. The engine of our sanctification isn't self-discipline. There is a place for self-discipline. I'm not preaching against self-discipline. But sometimes we view the Christian life as as if it is just a series of following rules until we get to heaven. That's not what God wants your Christian life to be. According to this text, God wants your Christian life to be filled with awe at the person of Jesus. God wants your Christian life to be filled with awe at God as he's revealed revealed himself in his son. And then that sense of awe will lead to and be the engine of all of your obedience. Faith is the foundation of our obedience, just as it is the only means by which God justifies us. So we're justified by faith alone, and we're also transformed into Christ's image by seeing him through faith, by beholding our God. So seeing the glory of Christ is what marks the beginning of the, uh, is what marks our sanctification. But notice also in verse 6, seeing the glory of Christ is what marks the beginning of your Christian life as well. We touched touched on this earlier too, but let's look at it again. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is comparing in this verse the creation of the heavens and the earth and the entire universe. When God said, let there be light, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, in the beginning, God said, let light shine out of darkness. But not even that is as great of a miracle as when he, sh- he uh, shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you were converted, it was God taking a a sinner who was spiritually dead and in the grave, unresponsive toward God and desiring everything that was opposed to him. You were not a neutral party. We were hostile to God before he shined in our hearts and his son. So in that way, this act of new creation in the soul of a person is even even greater than the act of creation itself. Because God has taken something that is dead and raised it to spiritual life. But notice what he did that through. He did that 
by revealing his glory to you in his son. He did that by showing you, look at how glorious I am in all that I've accomplished in my son. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And on the other side of that coin, what Paul says about people who are unbelievers is in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're here today and you profess faith in Jesus, you profess to know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, but you have no love for him in your heart. And that love isn't transformative, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Then according to this text, that's a false conversion because even the demons believe intellectually. The kind of knowledge and the kind of belief that God gives in bringing sinners to himself is a knowledge that loves his glory in his son. It's a knowledge that will sit back and stand in awe of Jesus. It's a knowledge that creates a heart in somebody that will only be satisfied in Christ. If you're truly a believer, I've heard it said by somebody else, but it's true. That nothing on this earth can satisfy you. It's only the glory of God as he's shone, as he shines in his son. So that's the beginning of your Christian life. The beginning of your Christian life, it, it starts with seeing and beholding and savoring the glory of God as it's revealed in his son. And it's also the engine of our sanctification as we continually behold his glory as it's manifested in his son. But it's also what we will be doing for all of eternity. I'd like to close with a vision of the end. Uh, Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And in a certain sense, I think this impresses a reality on our hearts that shows us whether we truly belong to the Lord or not. Because heaven for eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, will be characterized by what we read in this text. And if, if we don't, if we aren't satisfied and enthralled, and if we don't love the glory of God, who God is as he's revealed himself in Jesus now, then what makes us think that we will love that in heaven. So that really shows us where our hearts are at, doesn't it? It shows us whether we truly belong to the Lord or not. So read with me in Revelation chapter 22. This is the revelation that Jesus showed to John of the end of all things. This is the eternal state that he is describing. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more and there will be no uh, there will be, uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there are tons of good things about the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, that are shown to us in this vision. We have the tree of the water of life. That symbolizes eternal life that never ends. We have trees on each side of that river, which hearken back to the tree of life. And they're another symbol of the never-ending and blessed nature of this eternal state. And we see that the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So we know that there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. We know from other texts that we will inhabit this eternal state in resurrected bodies. The Lord Jesus will return from heaven one day. And everyone who is dead will be raised. And those who are in Christ will be transformed to reflect his glory eternally. So there are tons of good things that this vision explains to us. But all of those things that I just went through are all secondary to this one thing that I want us to see from this text that we'll close with. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. That's the joy and the beauty of heaven. The joy and the beauty of heaven is not primarily our resurrection bodies. That is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it's a secondary thing. The joy of heaven isn't no more sickness or crying or pain. That is a good thing, but it's a secondary thing. The joy and the beauty of heaven will be the fact that you will see God's face in the person of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And you know what? You will never become bored or dissatisfied with it. Because because God's being as it is revealed in Christ is infinite. So we will spend day by day eternally delighting in who God is for all of eternity. And there's no, there is no floor to that ocean. It keeps going forever. That's the majesty of God in his son. You could never grow tired of it, even though it might not seem like it now, because we're sinful. The eternal state is captured by the beauty and the majesty of our God. So what I want us to do is reflect on what it is that we truly want. What is it that we truly desire in this life? For the person who has been brought from death to life and who's seen Christ in a saving way, the answer is Jesus. The answer is who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever, eternally, as he's revealed himself in Jesus. So that's what I want us to think about as we embark on this series through the being and attributes of God. Let's, uh, let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your grace is sufficient to bring sinners like us into triumph over sin and death and hell in your Son. We thank you for the beauty and the majesty of your Son. We thank you that he died for our sins and rose from the dead to declare who you are to us. And we thank you that your glory in him is something that we could never become tired of. It's something that we could never become sick of because you are an infinite fountain of good for your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My prayer is is that as we have heard these things this morning, it is your desire to know God above everything else. And the way to know Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ. What a great God we have. In closing, I would ask that you take your hymns of grace again and turn to number 216. Behold our God. That's not it. What is it? 126. I'm sorry. 126. Behold our God seated on the throne. Come, let us adore Him. Hymns of Grace, number 126. Let's stand together.
delighted that you're here. You're welcome to stay for lunch. We'll be coming to the Lord's table in the afternoon service around 145. Thank you.